It is March 23rd, 1950. We are at the RKO Pantages Theater where we are having the 22nd Annual Academy Awards. Of course, uh, in the future, I feel like this RKO Pantages Theater might drop the RKO and just be a Pantages Theater. I don't know. That's just a prediction I'm going to have. You have great premonition. <laughs> it has been a hotly contested contest all night with uh, the war- awards being divvied up between three big movies, uh, The Heiress, A Letter to the Three Wives, and one other that I think might take home the gold. May I have the envelope, please? And the winner is... <laughs> the winner is All the King's Men. Mm. Oh! Was that the one you were putting your money on? Well, you know, the director... Um, uh, usually is also the best picture winner, you know, as so that was kind of a surprise. That is true. This is one of those rare instances where our best picture and best director don't line up, which is interesting because I feel like that's a trend we're seeing a lot more now in recent years, whereas, you know, in decades past, especially the 1940s, it always seemed to line up. Picture and director went together. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, but last year, uh, we we talked about there was a split, um, and then but but with Gentlemen's Agreement and and uh, uh, the best years of our lives. What came? Uh, let's see. Last weekend, weekend, going my way. Going my way. Casablanca. Casablanca. Mrs. Miniver. Miniver. was my valley. Yeah. Um, basically, there was a huge run there up until. Uh, up until Hamlet last year, and now it's the second year in a row that that happened. So and I, I believe I also, yeah, I read as well that this is the last year that a Best Picture winner doesn't also win at least directing or screenwriting as well. This is the only movie in, I think until, I can't remember what movie they said, it just happened again recently. Um, but yeah, all the King's Men managed to win Best Picture without winning direction or screenplay. Yeah, usually screenplay, direction, editing is another one that is usually pretty big um, as far as a predictive um, indicator of what Best Picture might be. Uh, But this one just got two acting awards in addition to Best Picture. It did. Um, Which, you know, we'll go ahead, we'll dive into All the King's Men. Obviously, we like to talk about the other stuff first. (laughs) Um, We sure do. (laughs) And there's there's a pretty exciting category and win that we have this year that Uh, is important thing to talk about we should probably just save it (laughs) i think you're right i want to keep people in suspense i want to like talk about all the things that we don't care as much about first (laughs) that's fair this would be the last year that all the best picture nominees were in black and white the very last time the very last time isn't that crazy R.I.P. Uh, did we introduce ourselves? Did we? Oh my gosh, I don't know if we did. This is Sam. What's your name? <laughs> back again. I'm back again. Oh, I keep trying to get rid of you. Yes. <laughs> um, don't I know it? <laughs> uh, Rance. Rance is my name. Um, so, okay, let's look at these nominees. Let's do it. 1949 Best Picture nominees. We had the winner, All King's Men. Also, Battleground nominated. Battleground, I haven't seen all the way through, but I caught, like, a good chunk of it on TCM once, and it's yeah. a very, like, stark, realistic uh, uh, war movie. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it, like, it looks like documentary footage, kind of. 
Oh, wow. So very, uh, like, re- yeah, the realism yeah. is there. Which, if you'll notice, it, it was uh, produced by Dory Sherry, um, who is the guy who comes in, who is um, eventually going to be replacing Louis B. Mayer. And he's the guy who wants to turn MGM away from the frilliness. Sure. And, and into... Uh, <laughs> Hardcore the, World War II films? Yes. <laughs> kind <laughs> of. Yes. Um, anyway, keep going. What else we, we have? Got? We have what? The Heiress, which we will discuss in a moment. Let's not talk about the greatest film. <laughs> <laughs> we, will, we will get to The Heiress. Uh, we have A Letter to Three Wives, which let me tell you, I tried to find this movie. Um, well, I tried to find it for free. So there obviously there are options to rent and purchase it, but I just wasn't about that last night. <laughs> and I couldn't find it anywhere for free, so I wasn't able like to watch it. I think I would like it too. I did find the trailer for it, <laughs> so I watched the trailer. It's which was very, great. it's very, um, it, it's sweet. It's a, it's a really interesting movie, and it has, um, you can see it's by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who uh, we're going to talk a lot more about next year. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you can see the thread from A Letter to the Three Wives to All About Eve. There's like that, that shifting narration. Yes, you know. Which is what uh-huh. I love about his scripts and what I feel like he's just a, a genius screenplay. Uh, literate. Very literate. Very. You know, all of his scripts are so witty. And I just love the way he uh, writes the screenplays, you know, with uh, the voiceover. It's 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 all it's not ever told in the same way twice. Uh, and they're just very unique. I love that. Yeah, it's good. It's good. And the cast is pretty good. It has like... Uh... Kirk Douglas is in it. And, right, right, right. Yeah. And voiceover work by Celeste Holm. Uh, yes, Celeste, Celeste Holm, our Oscar winner from a couple years ago. And an Oscar nominee this evening. Yeah, well, who cares? <laughs> Come to the stable. She's, she's not going to win for coming to the stable. She's stable. And uh, neither is Gregory Peck for 12 O'Clock High, which was the final Best, Best Picture, Picture nominee. Yeah. Uh, 12 O'Clock High, it's um, another uh, war movie. We're going to have quite a few of those about World War II. We've already had. We're going to have more. Um, World War II is going to be the Academy's favorite subject for a good century. It's going to uh-huh. become, well, here's the deal. I feel like World War II becomes America's favorite subject forever. Literally yeah, forever. No, so, it's true. You know, we've seen... We're still continuing to see the effects of World War II on not just Hollywood, but mainstream politics. Like, it's always playing in the back of people's minds. That's why I think 1917 was so novel to people this year, because it was about World War One, and we don't ever talk about World War One anymore. We, we really don't. Yeah. You it's know, like I feel like... Don't know a ahead. lot about No, I just feel like we've taken away this narrative from World War Two where we were such heroes you know which we were we were fighting for the good and we've just clung on to that you know the american way is now the world war ii way where our version of events is always correct you know we are right everyone else is wrong we're always doing things for the right reasons you know and i feel like that's kind of allowed for some you know toxic kind of takeaways yeah, it's it's, it's like a later. bag. It's a mixed bag because obviously we were in the right on World War Two, but mm-hmm. um, but it also positioned us as this superpower that kind of led to I don't know this attitude where well I don't have to wear a mask. 
<laughs> that's what I like it too. I feel like there's an entitlement whenever yes. Americans are told to do something because Absolutely. we think we're better than everybody else. You can see this in the nominees here. There's a darker turn um, in these movies and the movies that we took, looked at last year and the year before. There's like a, um, there's kind of a, a the film noir may not be the genre it's i mean it's not a genre it's a movement but it may not be what any of these films would be typed as but it definitely is influencing the situation 100 percent. yeah when i was you know when i watched all the king's men mm-hmm. i was very kind of taken aback by just how many noir qualities exist in that movie especially toward the end Oh yeah, no, it gets it gets very dark. Before, okay, real quickly before we get to all the King's Men, let's just like take a brief look at the other winners this year. Twelve O'clock High also won Best Supporting Actor, um, and uh, Letter Three Wives won Best Screenplay. It's a screenplay director, which is why it's kind of funny it didn't win Best Picture. It won both screenplay and director. Joseph Mankiewicz is going to do that again next year. We do have some foreign films nominated in these categories, though. Bicycle Thieves, which is, you know, considered one of the best movies ever made. Definitely probably the best example of Italian neorealism. Yes, and this is right where that begins seeping in, which is going to eventually have an effect on American films as well. Absolutely. Um, uh, Roberto Rossellini is nominated over in Best Story and Screenplay. I guess that they can nominate him in spite of the fact that he ran off with Ingrid Bergman. You know that whole story, right? I do. When did that happen? In the late 40s, like 48, 49. So this, it had already happened at this point. So it had happened, yeah. So you, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely. Because he was married. It's right around. He's it's married. Right this. Yeah, it was an, she was married, he was married. And they had an affair. Because they were, they were both Catholics, correct? And they couldn't... They didn't believe in divorce. Something like, oh, they get married in 1950, yeah. Um, something like that. But it was also a big deal just because, you know, she was this big, huge movie star, and Americans were just shocked that she had an affair. And she ended up basically going away from the United States, and she wasn't accepted here until uh, Anastasia, which we'll get to. That was, it, what, 1956? Yes, she, yeah. uh, she was gone for quite a while. She was, she was, all because of Rossellini. Of course, she ended up having a daughter out of that situation named Little Isabella. Uh, Isabella Rossellini, who um, is, I think, most significant for being in one of the greatest films of all time. Death you Becomes know. Her. <laughs> People thought I was going to say Blue Velvet, but no. I, that was the first one that jumped to my mind, but then I went, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Baby It's Cold Outside wins best original song. Oh my gosh. Uh that song's gonna date well. Um, <laughs> controversial. Controversial. Anywho, uh Edith Head also wins an Oscar for the heiress, one of her gazillion. This was actually her first, her first of eight Oscar wins and so what thirty a lot. Thirty-five nominations, I think, total. I mean like, come on overachiever. Yeah. Come on. This, uh, this. I mean, we, I think we talked about this when it started with cinematography and stuff. Um, there are two separate awards for a while um, into the 60s uh, for black and white and color costume design, cinematography, and set decoration. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it makes sense because they are really two different 
art forms. Very much at so. This point. Yeah. What's really interesting too is just to kind of piggyback off of that, like they really are such separate forms of cinema. So much so that like throughout the 50s and 60s, as studios were moving away from black and white movies, more toward color pictures to kind of make things more grand, more of a spectacle, a lot of directors pushed against that. They wanted to stay doing black and white, you know, and I think that's really interesting looking back on it today you know we think of black and white movies as being so archaic where directors of that time really preferred it yeah you're right i think that uh of the two best picture nominees left that we haven't talked about um <laughs> both of them are very effective black and white films absolutely yes definitely are you know and one it's... and one being you know modern for 1949 with all the king's men and then one being period piece you know yeah, um, I don't even know. Uh, let's, I, I, we, the heiress is special to us, so let's save that. Um, all the King's Men. All of them. Uh, I just watched right before this podcast, so it's really fresh in my mind. Yay, that's so good. Uh, uh, it is, uh, you know, it kind of, uh, there, there's threads of Capra in the movie, but it's like a really dark Capra movie. Absolutely. Would you it's say that that's a good... Very dark. Because I feel yeah. like... I feel... Yeah, I see what you're saying here. In All the King's Men, I feel like the um, uh, the John Ireland character mm-hmm. is what Jimmy Stewart would be for a Frank Capra movie, right? That mm-hmm. kind of... You know, he's the everyman in this political system. But it's as if Jimmy Stewart did, like, a line of cocaine and liked it, and he kept going... Do you know yes. what I mean? Instead of, like, going in the opposite direction, he's Pick like, oh, no. yeah. <laughs> yes, give me the evil, give me the corruption, I want this. He's, like, fueled from it. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely. It just, like, okay, well, the story, um, it's about um, uh, a reporter, uh, John Ireland's the reporter, who discovers a, um, a charismatic new politician um, who's homegrown and not yet educated and he's uh, he's running for office. He loses. He gets a law degree, tries again, loses again. And when he loses again, he figures out how people get things done in politics, basically. And then he comes back and he comes back as a very corrupt um, wheeling and dealing, talking out of both sides of his mouth. Mm-hmm. kind of politician and he um broderick crawford uh plays the main character here um and he won best actor as well and he sweeps everybody up into his charisma basically um to the point where the character particularly the the main girl in the story um who's uh well there's two main girls but there's one uh played by joanna drew who's the girlfriend and she is set up as that devoted girlfriend character and you know we saw it in gentleman's agreement you know um, where you have that character that you're like oh she's not gonna um she's we can trust her (laughs) right she seems very pure and uh, um you know almost naive to a fault you know yeah but then 
I did not expect that. Um, <laughs> no, me either. She kind of, well, like, you wait. know, in comparing this to, like, a, a film noir of this time, she kind of becomes that femme fatale character where she double crosses, you know? She does, and she... She really does. There's, like, literally nobody that... And he's not, like, a great-looking dude. He just, like... No. But you see him come into his own, so it doesn't not make sense when it happens. I know... You know what I'm saying? No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's really really touching upon that uh, personality trait and characteristic of successful politicians um, who are able to just speak. Their public speaking is so good that they can kind of rally anybody onto their side. You know, I think this is kind of a little bit of a commentary on Hitler and how he was able to get the Nazi party started and have German, you know, Germans follow him and and whatnot. Um, Although more specifically, this character is based off of Huey Long, who was the um, governor of Arkansas and later became a senator. Um, and then he was kind of being, uh, I don't know, poised to become a presidential nominee in the 1930s. But he had these, these very drastic ideas for, you know, change and reform that the right side didn't want. So he was assassinated. It's like, um, I, I don't know. I, I guess had I thought about it, it is the inevitable conclusion of the story. Um, yeah, I didn't see it coming though. I mean, I didn't know kind of the backstory of this movie until after watching it. So no, when he, at the very end there, when, uh, you know, the doctor comes out with the gun, I was like, oh my gosh. There's also a great character played by Mercedes McCrambridge. Yes. In this movie, um, who won Best Supporting Actress. And she's like the, um, she's a twist on like the Gene Arthur character in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Very much you so. Know, where she's the um, the uh, the right hand man, the um, the almost like his communications manager, you know. Yeah, and she, yeah, the 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 everything, you know, yeah. in the campaign, um, who really helps steward this guy to where he ends up landing, and um, what's the name of the character again? I uh, what is Robert. Her name? plays uh uh willie stark yeah stark um and she like i i really am support in support of her winning that oscar oh me too no it's a very layered performance you know she starts off being a character who uh tricks uh, what's his name? Willie Stark? Willie Stark, the main character. Broderick Crawford. She kind of tricks him to run for office so that she can split the vote and get a different candidate to win. But then she's very taken by him, and she kind of starts to believe his message. So she becomes, you know, a member of his political office, which gets him to become governor. And, and she has there. with him, too. She does. They have an affair together, and she's, you can tell she's very, I mean, there's that beautiful scene where she's talking to herself in the mirror because she knows... <laughs> yes, I believe like, this this would be her her Oscar moment. No, it's you know she she's it's, thinking it's in the mirror about how she's she doesn't think she's as pretty as, as other women he's having affairs with, and she knows yeah. that. And I think she's you know helping to cover up his affairs because he is married, but she's realizing for the first time that she yeah exactly that she's not as pretty as all these other girls. And yeah, it's, it's really really well done. Married. 
he's still married and has a mm-hmm. uh, kid who's not his bio who's not his and his wife's biological kid they just raised him yeah uh, but the kid by the way um first of all when we first meet him it's the same actor the whole way through but then <laughs> like eight years passes and he's in college i was yeah. confused by that um <laughs> and he still looks like he's 17 yeah he said, and maybe he was he went to he went to world war ii and had to wait to go to college that's what i'm gonna say that to make be. sense um but um but he uh he's very attractive that's all i wanted to say <laughs> he's very good looking it's very very true very very attractive good hair had good good hair i liked his hair um, but he, uh, they, he, the way they handle his story is, is great too. The way, uh, the way the corruption affects his family. Yeah, it's a really, really good movie, and I think it kind of asks that really tough question with politics of, and something we're seeing even to today. You know, can can something be considered good if it is, you know, brought about? from corruption you know for example in the movie um he's able to get all these things done for the state of arkansas he builds them a hospital bridges roads he brings a lot of good but he does it through a lot of corruption backstabbing lying you know dirty dealing so then are those things can we still consider them good even though it comes out of something so awful it's a really hard question to think about yeah, it is. It is. And it's an interesting for question. someone like that. You know, he he does want to get good things passed and good things accomplished, but it's the way he goes about them, which is so wrong. You know, is that somebody you could work for? Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it asks some it asks some really interesting questions and uh, the ethical nature and what whether or not they actually have their own or the public's best interest at heart. Right. You know, Um because that's it, what it, he's, he became a, you know, a politician in the first place. He got all of the poor people's votes. You know, a lot of times a movie will will look at it like uh, with the, the Claude Rains character in Mr. Smith Go to, Goes to Washington comes to mind, where they got in it for the la- right reasons, but then they became part of the system, and they right. were a cog in the wheel. I, I think this character was corrupt from the start he wanted the power it was all about the power well i think it was you know when he made that first big speech and he realized that people were listening to him and that people um liked what he had to say he realized where the power was and the power is in making your um i don't know foes your political rivals look bad you know i mean he was basically outing all their atrocities and people were able to realize like oh there is a system at work here and this guy wants to fight against it you know he's kind of using that to his advantage and something that is from the playbook this is i mean trump clearly watched this movie um (laughs) as uh well i doubt it because it seems above his uh comprehension (laughs) but um but you know the way that that whole like um, accuse people of what you're doing, mm-hmm. you know that's Absolutely. that's the Trump playbook. You know, um, if you're be, committing treason, com- com- tell them the other person's committing treason. You know that, and also be the loudest person in the room. That's kind of what Willie Stark's character does. He just yells louder and louder and louder. You know, mm-hmm. not 
really saying much is being loud. And that's exactly what we're seeing Trump do, too, you know, and also relying on that silent majority, you know. How are we going to how are we going to I mean, like, how are we going to defeat this political candidate of mine? I know I'll get dirt on him through the Ukraine. I mean, like, this is. Oh, yeah, it's. It's this so is what the crazy thing is. Day. You watch All the King's Men now, and this movie could be released today, and it would have the same impact, you know? Yeah. Corruption and in politics has never changed. No, and how easy it is to sway a group of people when you have when you get into play that, that mob mentality. And, mm-hmm. um, no, it's, it's very pertinent, and it, it, it's like I kept thinking the DNA of Capra is all over this movie but it's a it's it's a capra story with a different perspective without the good characters without believing in the because capra capra movie like mr smith goes to washington has all these corrupt characters but everyone has like an ounce of good in them yes that's not the case here and that's what's so i agree I mean, you this know. movie, the characters in this movie are honestly so vile and awful that when Robert Rose and the director-writer gave the script to John Wayne, who is his first choice for Willie Stark, John Wayne basically told him uh, that it's awful and terrible and un-American, and he rejected uh, the script. Yeah. Well, I mean, Austriotic. He was, he was <laughs> not going to like a movie like this one because it was a very liberal and he was oh, yeah. very conservative. Which is interesting um, because in the best yeah. the best actor race, it kind of came down to Broderick Crawford and All the King's Men and John Wayne for Sands of Iwo Jima. I mean, like, you – I feel like you're constantly questioning what is good and what is bad in him. Yes. Like, he, he does a very good job of creating a character that is somehow – vile and multi-dimensional absolutely it's kind of like the i kind of call it like the hannibal lecter effect where he's a terrible terrible person but you still want him to like you no that's it and that's the reason why he's able to have those affairs and exactly yeah no it's um it's a very I, good I was, performance it's a very good performance i i completely understand why this one best picture um it is. It is a. It's a. It's a. It's a great movie. And you know what I think is equally fascinating too. And I was doing a little bit of research on the production of this film. The original cut that Robert Rosen had was like 280 minutes long. Yes. And they were like, they were like, clearly we cannot kind of you know release this into theaters. So what they did was they told the editor for all the scenes, just take the middle section of every scene, cut off so much on the beginning of it and the end of every scene and then we're just going to put all that together and we'll see if anything is good if it's compelling so what you're watching in the movie the final like 108 minute cut version of this film it's just the middle chunks all put together of every big scene which cut it down drastically and that's why you get this kind of like frenetic hurried energy throughout it you know and i caught this too in some of the scenes where it seems to like leave so abruptly like there's that scene where uh well when mercedes mccambridge has that kind of moment in the mirror and then after john ireland slaps her 
it very quickly fades out and fades back in. Like there must have been more to that scene that was cut out, but it really helps to move the story along. Like there's really no dead air in this movie. No, and it. But I think that part of the reason the movie works so well is because there is a ripped from the headlines feeling about it, and a news story doesn't have that. Yes, that's why, like, this whole movie kind of feels like you're watching an old newsreel, you know? That's exactly the effect the editing has. That's a really great, yeah, that's a really great um, way of putting that. It does feel like a newsreel. Mm-hmm. Um, I, no, I I could talk about this for a while, but um, there is another movie I want us to get to. We really but, appreciate it. Uh, but this, uh, I I can't say this enough. This is one of the least known Best Picture winners, but it is definitely worth watching. I watched it for free on Crackle, which yes. you can sign up for with a free subscription. I will warn you, they have randomly placed commercials throughout. <laughs> um, Imagine that. But, yeah, uh, I really, I'm, yeah, this is kind of the, the difficult part because I really, I like that this movie wins Best Picture. I really understand why. I think it's a great political thriller. Um but there is another movie that I <laughs> that I really think my is heart. superior. <laughs> that my yes. my heart is just all for. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the heiress. Uh, which I will say is like sadly not available to watch anywhere. It's very right hard now. to find. Yes. Yeah. It stars Olivia De Havilland. Yes. Um, and she plays um Catherine Sloper, who uh is a spinster and she's very nervous she's very um socially awkward socially (laughs) awkward um and she uh is really controlled by her very domineering father um played by ralph richardson played by ralph richardson and ralph richardson um dominates her to the point where he he keeps her from ever finding a personality, finding any way to get out there in society, basically. And one day, Montgomery Clift, who is young and handsome, and delicious, starts delicious, starts <laughs> romancing Catherine. And he, the dad is automatically suspicious, but Catherine, all nervous and awkward, has never had attention from anyone, so she's all about it. And um they make plans to elope because the dad doesn't approve of the marriage. But then when he finds out that she's not going to get the inheritance from her father, she'll still get the inheritance her mother had left to her. But when he, she's not going to get the inheritance from her father, uh, he skips out on the, on the elopement. Yes. And dad is proved correct. Um, Or is he? Or is That's he? A, does he or does he not love her? Is he or is he not sincere? Exactly. Was it just for the money or did he actually love her? Then, some mild spoilers here. We flash forward in time um, after the father has died and she has inherited all of this money. And in that time that between she gains confidence and poise and becomes kind of a regal lady. Um, and then Montgomery Clift comes back. Mm. Morris is his name. I just remember that. Yes. 
And uh, through this whole time, she also has an aunt who lives with her, played by Miriam Hopkins, mm-hmm. um, in uh, a great little performance as well. Um, and it's really just those four people, though. Yeah. Um, there's no one else. There's there's like a maid who has a couple of lines, but it's really a very small, um, intimate drama between these few characters, um, directed by William Wyler. Yes. And it sounds and it looks like it's just going to be your costume drama and you're not going to care anything about it, but there's something so electric about it. Yes. Yeah, that would be the word, <laughs> electrifying. It's, it is, everything just jumps off of the screen, this movie. And I would say the success to this movie, I think it's very easy to say, is Olivia de Havilland, Olivia de Havilland, Olivia de Havilland. But there is something about Ralph Richardson in this movie as well as her father. Uh-huh. It's really the story of their relationship and all uh, you know, that had gone on before we even start the movie. Because you just know there's so much damage being done, which we don't see, you know, when she grows up. You know, the reason why she is so awkward in social settings is because she never, she didn't have the mom growing up with her to teach her how to be a lady, how to talk to men. It was just her dad telling her how, you know, awkward she is and how she can't do anything. You know, he he says that about her to everybody she she's good for nothing she's just someone to look at blah 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 so basically she believes this about herself that's why it's so heartbreaking when you realize montgomery clift really probably was just after her money however it seemed like he would have given her a good life and the dad didn't want that so it's just this pull it's and i will say like the central performance by Livy de Havilland is it might be it's mind blowing. It might be, yeah. you know, it's definitely up there. I don't want to say it's the greatest female performance on screen because we haven't gotten to Sophie's Choice yet, but <laughs> it is certainly a precursor for amazing performances to come. It is up there. Just the the arc her character goes through. I mean, when in the beginning scenes where she's all like, you know, <laughs> awkward and not know what to say and doesn't know how to behave, it's so funny, but funny in such an endearing way that like as an audience, you just want to like give her a hug to show her that she can be loved because nobody it ever does. You know, it breaks your heart. So by the yeah. end, when you see how she's been transformed in this into this kind so of bitter, sweet. hardened yeah. woman, you know, it who sad. Yeah. It's like impressive and sad at the same time. It is. You know, like you're proud of her for being stronger and for owning herself, but you're so sad that she's just never she's just resigned to being alone. bitter yes. and alone. A little yeah. bitter. And I will say, like, when I was, when I watched this movie, I became, I was just so obsessed with it, you know? So I kind of went back to the source material. It's based off of uh, Henry James's Henry Washington James. Square. Yeah. Yes. Which the inspiration for that was um, this idea of what, what creates a spinster, you know, this old spinster who never comes out of her house. What actually creates that type of person? So he wrote this story about what he feels like would have created that kind of a character heartbreak you know a father's rejection and all these things go into creating that kind of isolation inside of a person and that's what it's about and i yeah i i 
can't give any more praise to this movie. It's absolutely astonishing. And um, the the novel was written in the, like the early 20th century, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and then it was adapted for the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and Olivia saw the stage production and and wanted to make it as a movie. Yeah. And she asked William Wyler if he would direct it. Um, and she hadn't worked with him before. Um, and it's interesting because we got like three different styles of acting from the three leads. Mm, um, yeah. You know, and Miriam Hopkins, I, I don't, I say she's a very heavy supporting part as well. Yes. But, um, um, and she was a really big star in the 30s. Um, so you have her level of studio acting. You have Olivia that also came up through the studio system where you take all the classes to learn poise and etiquette. And, and, and your, your thought process of how to approach acting comes from the studio's version of whatever was accepted at the time. You have Ralph Richardson, who is a preeminent stage actor. Yes. You know, and then you have Montgomery Clift, who's coming out of the actor's studio um, and method acting. And it's so interesting because those acting styles are not the same. And they're all coming from different places and how they get to what they show on screen. But they, I don't know, maybe that conflict of style adds to adds to the tension in the film. You know what I'm saying? Because yes, you have you have three people who are not only approaching the study of their characters in different ways, you have three people who are um you have by having three people that are approaching their characters studying their characters in different ways and approaching the characters in different ways, you have three characters who ultimately are not totally communicating. Yeah, absolutely. You know? know, That's very, very true. Because that's part of it as well, too, is the fact that Olivia de Havilland, her character, is so much older than Montgomery Clift's character in the film as well. You know, so there is... Which, by the way, it's early 1900s, so it's probably like five years. But I mean, like... (laughs) Time. (laughs) But there is an age gap that the, the father does comment on, you know, which is why he thinks she shouldn't be with him because he'll just squander all their money, which he does in the movie, you know? So there's... You're right, there's a lot of... His own money, right? Yes. Um, um, no, but it's, no, it's 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 so. There's so much. It's just such a complex relationship mm-hmm. movie, you know. Um, and I mean not. I don't mean romantic relationship. I mean the relation between a father and a daughter. The relation between um, a potential lover and a lover, you know, mm-hmm. the relationship between that potential lover and the father. I mean, like, there's there's so much going on dynamically, and it, somehow in the meld of having the right people cast and the perfect director, a director who lets actors do their thing, basically. Definitely. Uh, but I think, I think you're right, though. I feel like, just to add upon your comment on the acting techniques and styles in this movie, I think that is also why it is so exciting seeing Olivia de Havilland 
and Montgomery Clift in a scene together, two different acting styles, and it feels weird. When you're watching it and you're watching these two people interact, they you just see them not quite meeting you know up. It's not, you know it's not right. There's some kind of you know, friction there. It's supposed to, yeah, it isn't supposed to be right, and that's exactly. why it's so good. It's and that's why there's be. even exactly and that's why there's even more friction when you have Montgomery Clift and Ralph Richardson in a scene together. It's even more intense, you know? Well Which you I, have that old that you have that experience stage. Yeah. stage um projecting to the back row situation. Mm-hmm. And that's great for a domineering father. Um and that really drives home the scenes with Olivia de Havilland and him as well, because yeah. she's she's this actress who's been cha- trained for the screen almost exclusively. I mean, she technically started *Midsummer Night's Dream* right. but uh, on the stage, but I mean, basically the state the screen is where she learned everything. And somebody who's been acting on the screen since she was seventeen, and she she's like this, and then you have this guy who's from the stage and he's like this because he's projecting the back row and she's acting smaller because she's from movies and he's acting bigger. It's just like such an interesting. It is. It's like, interesting it's dynamic. like the theme of this movie could be something as simple as like, you know, Olivia to have when she's being pulled in two different directions, either the old ways of living in life or this new, more modern way of living. And she just has some absolutely brilliant. I mean, the entire, the ending is so perfect. When she walks up the staircase the last time, when she says goodbye to Montgomery Cliff, doesn't even say goodbye, locks the door on him and just has that final ascension up the staircase. It is just so wonderful. Oh, it's It's, perfect. It's the most beautiful. And her, her last line, because there's the last couple of minutes of the movie are, are, there's no dialogue outside of, Montgomery Cliff banging on the door. Her last line is, I can be very cruel. I've been taught by masters. Mm-hmm. It's like the only thing she learned from her father was how to hate, you know? And that's what she and took away movie, from him. A whole movie she's do- doing the needlework. And that's the one thing she kind of keeps through the whole film. Yep. And the way she does it at the end is so assured and so... Yes. And so deliberate. Uh, it's, it's just like... Um, it's flawless. It's absolutely flawless. Her, her arc is amazing. The way she plays the character is amazing. This is the the role she was born to do. And this is a slam dunk. I don't care who else was nominated. As far as the women who have won Best Actress goes, and ranking just the winning performances, Olivia in The Heiress is a top five. Oh, absolutely. I would agree with you there. I cannot recommend it enough. And it is, I, I mean, I rank it over, even though All the King's Men is a great movie and it is a worthy Best Picture winner. Mm-hmm. I am not upset that it won because I do like that it that that Best Picture win probably helps it maintain its relevance. But yes, that said, The Heiress is bar none my favorite movie and in my opinion, the best movie of 1949. Absolutely. I would agree with you there. You know, the All the King's Men, I guess, you know, in the context of 1949, I can see why this movie probably received more votes than The Heiress did. Uh, But I think today The Heiress is the better picture. I just I think it is. 
Uh, one final little story from this that I just remembered. I'm sure you read this too. Um, when uh, during the the basically the halfway point in the movie, whenever uh, Montgomery Cliff stands her up, um, and she carries her luggage upstairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, she just has to carry the luggage up wearily. There's not any dialogue. Um, William Wyler made her do it like 40 times or something like that. <laughs> and he, like it wasn't right. And she just got so angry um, after having to walk up the steps again with all the all these luggage that she just like threw them on the ground after the 40th take. And they a few of them opened up and he realized there wasn't anything in the bags. And the reason he didn't like it is because there wasn't the heft to the bags and he wasn't getting that little expression of pain right um, out of her face and actually seeing the heaviness of the bags that he needed for the shot. Uh. So so then he loaded down weighted down the bat the bags with a lot of stuff and then had her carry it up and that was the take they used i love that i love william wyler so much this okay here's the other deal too the fact that william wyler directed this movie just reassures in my head his status of probably being the greatest of those you know early screen directors i mean his movies especially just, the most underrated he just does not the, not talk about enough no just look at the 1940s in general like i feel like the huge takeaway is always orson wells and citizen kane but look at the work william wyler did in just the 1940s alone it's insane no he has uh the letter the little foxes uh mrs miniver Best years um, of our best lives, years of our lives. Uh, and the heiress. the heiress, like, and all of those are very different, but all very good or two great movies. And you know why yeah. it is? It's because when he does his movies, he relies on the relationship between characters, especially characters in a family. That's where your drama yeah. is. That is where the nuances are, and he knows that. And you see and there it is, in all his movies. Yeah, there is that little bit. I mean, like, there is a core. I, I, I've thought about this before. Like, what is the connection between his films? Because he's he does such a varying degree of genres. And, and he isn't like Hitchcock or Capra or Wells, where you can point and say, like, ah, that. Yeah. That's what makes it their movie. Um, so he's a little bit... So I, I guess... For him, it's the character, um, the character relationships and how they build. Um, Roman Holiday even has that, the way that relationship builds between Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck in that movie. And yep. and then Funny Girl, if you want to go all the way up to there, like the way he builds Barbara Streisand's relationship with Omar Sharif and... Everything is grounded in relationship in a William yes. Myler movie. You Definitely. Know? And um, that's why I think they become so relatable and people are able to, um, I don't know, emotionally connect because we all have families. We all think a certain way about our family members, you know, those who mm-hmm. are really close in our lives. And yeah. when you see that played out in front of you, it's just, I don't know, it's very cathartic. Yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see how we can connect that in 10 years when we watch Ben-Hur. <laughs> <laughs> I think and you're see, right. <laughs> uh, 
see if we see if our theory about Weiler holds up when he is tackling a big spectacle. I think you so. might. Be- so yeah, um, my takeaways would be All the King's Men, great movie, highly recommend it. Yes. Um, however, the far superior picture is The Heiress. <laughs> Definitely watch that one first, everybody. Oh my gosh, please watch that movie tonight. Is... So let's see, we've got next week, everybody, we are entering a new decade. We've yes, got, we are. We've got 1950, which uh, this movie... <laughs> next week's movie is a pretty big movie i will say this is one of my huge, huge favorite movie. movies of all time i know we just got done talking about the heiress but all about eve is yeah i have a similar relationship to all about eve i love this movie so much talk about screenplays god <laughs> I <mean>. absolutely <laughs> and it's up against one of my other favorite movies um yes. sunset boulevard which yes. uh this is like, ah, and both those movies are kind of connected in a weird way because they're kind of about ageism in a different way. Absolutely. But um, uh, that'll be such a fascinating conversation. I cannot wait. I can't either. So yeah, uh, tune in next week, guys, and we will chat about 1950.